What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And on The Stack, we talk about a ton of comics that have come out this week. Let's kick it off with Creed, the next round, number one from Boob Studios, written by LaToya Morgan and Jai Jameson, art by Wilton Santos. It's also overseen uh, by our Creed himself, Michael B. Jordan, who is involved in the project. And this is... In a, uh, not Chiron, but date identifier that made me laugh out loud, takes place in the future, takes place in 2033. Yes. uh, Uh, And follows the Creed family, the next generation, as the daughter of Michael B. Jordan's character and Tessa Thompson's character uh, decides to get in boxing as well. Um, Obviously... Like we're talking about on the live show, I think there's a lot of weight that comes with a celebrity-driven comic, with a movie spinoff, all this stuff. But what did you think of this? Um, I I liked it. I think the um, uh, really nice art. I I like the Creed movies. The fact that it's set in the future doesn't affect a ton of the issue. You don't see a lot of very tiny cell phones or (laughs) – Flying uh, cars or things like that. Flying cars, water uh, covering Miami or any other place. Uh, so it's definitely just meant to um, match up with the timeline from the Creed movies is mm-hmm. uh, where I think we're headed here. Um, but I like the use of uh, sign language throughout this. I think that's real, done really effectively. I hadn't um, the uh, term the Count of Monte Fisto that is applied <laughs> here. I uh, e- either hadn't heard that or forgot that from the movie. So that was fun. And. You know, it's a story that uh, I think it takes a little bit to get going, but by the end of it, I was into what was happening. Yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised by it. Like you, I like the Creed movies, really like Michael B. Jordan. I was hesitant about this because it felt like this could just be a quick cash in on the popularity of the movies, but it feels like its own story. The art is very solid. The boxing is good. Um, and like you said, there's real stakes here that follow up. Yeah. I'll also throw out not to slam another comic, but the sign language and use of sign language, like we're saying, more impressive here than another book we're going to talk about later on with two hearing impaired characters. Um, works really well in this book. So I'm glad wow. they did it. Well, just yeah. in terms of like representation and everything, I think it's good to do. Hundred percent, and like you know, it's not meant here to be like look at this representation. It's just what's happening, and they found a very. Uh, it's not even. I wouldn't even call it that innovative. It's just like it fit the form in just a really smartly done way. Totally. Next up, X Men Before the Fall: The Heralds of Apocalypse, number one from Marvel, written by Al Ewing, art by Luco Pizzari, Stefano Lindini, and Rafael Pimento. This is following up on a big storyline in X Men where. Apocalypse is now a total loser. And <laughs> I mean, sort of. Kind of. That was my impression for the book. I was like, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. He's getting the shit kicked out of him all the time. Well, and honestly, and, uh, he sort yeah. of starts as a loser and ends as a loser. I he thought the his... arc of this book was going to be, there's a point to the book where he's fighting his wife, who is basically yeah. also Apocalypse, but more violent, I guess. Who And sort of more of a badass. And more of a badass, who was like, it. ah, there's the Apocalypse I know and love. And it lasts for about two pages, but he's like, leave me alone. Yeah. It's very funny to me that Apocalypse was like Age of Apocalypse, this like 
dark side level, like scary villain. And in this, he's such a like, I don't know, I'm important. He says at the beginning, he gets his ass kicked and like out discussed, out debated the whole book. And it ends with like, and to reiterate, I am important. (laughs) I was like, ah. Sick, dude. Cool. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm curious what the point of these books are. Presumably, they are setting up the Fall of X storyline, so we're going to see a lot more of this in that. Um, Overall, I'm fine with this book, but it's just a weird place to stick Apocalypse if you're not going to have this issue specifically be how Apocalypse got his groove back. You know, that seems to be where they're heading, but now it seems like that's going to happen in a different book, potentially. Yeah, and I I sort of like, it feels like it's going to play into Fall of X somehow, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. It feels like setting up Apocalypse as a potential bad guy seems cool and, and again, tracks with a lot of Apocalypse's history. But I just feel like a lot of these X-Men books, like my sort of mild complaint, because I do like a lot of the world, is that they are in love with a lot of the politics and bureaucracy that aren't super interesting from a storytelling perspective. Like, we spend so much of this book talking about Araco and, like, what all that is. And I'm like, I would much rather see an apocalypse-focused story about what he thinks and feels about the the world and life and like what he wants to do instead it's just them like recounting and, and doing a ton of exposition about stuff that we've already seen and the other stuff that may happen or we may see so it's sort of like it's just a lot of talk yeah here's one uh, nice art a, though nice art very nice art here's another one that's a lot of talk and i i feel like maybe we'll have a little bit of a disagreement about this but we'll see Could the be. riddler year one number five from dc comics written by paul dano art by steven subic this is following the path of the riddler from the batman from his early days through his leading presumably right up to the movie i'm, I'm guessing in the next issue um this issue you didn't like as much, it seems like. What I, I like, I've liked this series. I think it's been, I think Paul Dano as like, you know, a, I don't know if it's his first time writing a comic, but it feels like he's not a regular comic book writer. It's been really great, uh, especially like a, having a, a celebrity actor come in and like just write a comic about the character he's playing. It could have been, could be a disaster. So I think this is, uh, I really have enjoyed this series so far. But I, this issue really highlighted the fact that the Riddler may as well be any sort of crazy Batman villain. This could be like a screen because there's a lot of like text here and we're sort of inside the Riddler's notebook. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a dive into his insanity. And to me, the Riddler has never been about being insane. You could say he's obsessive, but it, it's much more about like, to me, Riddler confronting the uh, inherent like rigged game of Gotham city or society in general and being like, okay, I I will deviate from that and much more logically move forward when this, this is about like, these are the ravings of a madman. (laughs) And so like, I would much more like to see him like have like a break, a psychotic break or just a personality break with society and then become actually quite logical about it and methodical. Uh, so not to rewrite this book for uh, Paul Dano, again, a book I like, but like I, I feel like I actually want the flip of this. I want someone being like taking a moment in the busy Gotham City street being like, you know what? Fuck this. And mm-hmm. then meticulously planning out uh, the way that he will get his revenge. 
The I think I mean that's kind of what we're getting towards a little bit in this issue, but the fault of this issue to me was this was the most oh this was Paul Dano's notes when he was studying to put together the yeah. performance of the Riddler, and Stephen Subic does a phenomenal job of taking that and putting it together in a mixed media format that gets across these ideas, even though. It's much more didactic and much more text driven than the previous issues. I, I think yeah. I took a little, I took a little bit of an issue with the previous issue yeah. for filling in for information that felt like we already knew. This one does a similar thing, but is graphically more interesting. But at mm-hmm. the same time, uh, maybe this is the issue with a prequel in total, right? Like the first three issues, yeah. I thought were fascinating. I was super into them. Knew where it was going, obviously, but this was taking us on a path that I wasn't necessarily expecting. And with issues four and five, and presumably six, we're leading up to the point we know we're going to get to. So when you're doing a prequel, can you surprise people on that path? I think so. We've seen prequels that do it before, but it's hard. It is a difficult thing to do. Agreed. But I actually think the next issue, I think, will have some fun surprises for us. I feel like they will build in a good climax that will be mm-hmm. have a little bit of new information while this issue, and I take your point about the previous issue, has been a little bit of like just solidifying this stuff, mm-hmm. almost being like if you're a super fan of the Riddler, you're going to want this almost back matter for the character. But I bet the last issue will bring us some cool – action and interesting stuff. We'll see. Overall, I've been very impressed by the series, even if I haven't loved every issue. Let's move on to a big new one. The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, number one, from Dark Horse Comics. This is based on an idea by James Tynan IV, but it's written by Tate Bromble, art by Isaac Goodhart. It is tricky to explain this book Mm. just because it is tricky to follow exactly what the main character is doing. And it's not totally revealed what's going on in the world until very close to the end. But essentially for most of the book, you have a kid who seemingly is having some sort of psychotic breaks, maybe has HDHD, um, HDHD. High def. Yeah. Maybe has like two (laughs) HD televisions in a row. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I got you. Uh, Anyway, he has a bunch of things that are clearly wrong with him, or maybe he doesn't. It's not 100% clear, but things change dramatically by the end. What do you think about this kickoff? Uh, I liked it. Yeah, it does. There's a little bit of world building here, but this actually made me think of a uh, a almost Harry Potter esque kickoff, mm-hmm. uh, like where it's an introduction to a larger world where there are there's a lot going on when it comes to the rules of this world that have been thought out and meticulously planned, and we're just sort of dipping our first toe into it. So um, so I really enjoyed that, and I liked the sort of scenic development, the actual dramatic moments that are, are put in here, especially in the back half of the book. Yeah, I agree. really like the art here in particular, the design. It was yeah. very fun of Christopher Chaos. I think the other characters that show up, particularly towards the end, are really interesting in terms of the design. I got more and more into this as it went, and I'm very curious to see what happens in the issue. I didn't... Just two fashion notes. Anytime you're going to throw goggles on, strong choice. I had goggles yeah. for a time in my life. Did and, you? 
I wore tracks. some goggles. Well, why, what, what do you mean that tracks? What is it? You I mean that, that tracks. tracks. I'm just saying it tracks. What is it? What is a track? What is it? What do you mean by that? What's it tracks the track? with your personality. The way that what's I that personality? You're tra- you're tracking goggle. What do you track? Yeah, <laughs> it's, all, it's specifically the goggles. Yes. Uh, mine was like star star man uh, fanboyism, and also being like I could use an accessory. Mm-hmm. But I also got to shout out the other maybe better accessory is the. What seems like uh, a sort of character foil and later has a different role in the story. Um, guy in class who has a jacket, like a classic high school letterman jacket that has the uh, has on the back drama club king and has a theatrical mask on the sleeves. I was like, shouts. Yeah, give me one That's of those. Give me Side one of those. <laughs> and well, I don't know what school has a flex like that, but I wish I went to that high school. Classically trained kid. Batman, the Brave and the Bold, number two from DC Comics, written by Tom King, Ed Bryson, Christopher Cantwell, and Joe L. Jones. Art by Mitch Drads, Jeff Spokes, Javier Rodriguez, and Joel Jones. This is a collection of stories around the DC universe with the kickoff being a Joker fighting a young Batman story from Tom King and Mitch Drads. Um, I think we were generally pretty positive about the first issue. What did you think about issue number two? Same. This is this uh, story that uh, kicks off the each issue the, for, of the first two, uh, written by Tom King, is so dark uh, that it is it's good, but it, it's a lot of dark moments. And you don't need to even write. It was written by Tom King. It is very obvious as soon as you start reading it that it was yeah. written by Tom King. It's the paneled in the Tom King style. So shouts to that story. Really enjoyed that. And the rest of the stories I also liked. Great art. This is a prestige Batman shorts book. Agreed. After I got over it for the first issue where I was like, this isn't just Batman stories. What's going on here? I appreciate this more, uh, and this issue is very good. The Tom King story is very good, like you said. I enjoyed a lot of the other stories as well. Definitely worth picking up. Yeah, sorry, I said there was a Batman uh, story, but like we get this great uh, villain story in the middle that actually has some great, just like personal moments of villains hanging out and uh, messing up, and then a really cool Superman story mm-hmm. drawn by uh, Javier Rodriguez that I thought was just beautifully done. She-Hulk number 14 from Marvel, written by Rainbow Rowell, art by Andre Genolette. Over the past couple of issues, as Jack of Hearts, who is She-Hulk's kind of boyfriend, has been unable to touch her because of radiation and questions around that. She has started up a flirtation with a thief dude who seems to be impervious to harm. In this issue, things become even closer with the thief dude. Um... I'll say it again. Best romance book on the stands. I love it. Interesting. Because uh, this is the issue. His name is Scoundrel, where mm-hmm. I was like, all right, we need a turn here. We need to get it going. Because we've been too many issues of her being like, ooh, I'm dating Jack of Hearts, but this scoundrel's really attractive. The tension and, when they're dancing on his ship. Great stuff. Oh, man, you love some tension. I, I do love tension. I will say, though, it doesn't strike me as it's not quite sexual tension. I wish it pushed a little further into that. Like it's like a little bit of the it's the tension of her choosing between these two mm-hmm. uh, characters. And, you know, we all I think we all want sort of Jack of Hearts to be the guy. Uh, and, you know, I won't spoil what happens in this issue, but and also like the sc- scoundrel is setting up to be a much more <laughs> devastating character than yes. I thought. Absolutely. Uh, 
I love the use of the Fantastic Four. I feel like this comic has great one of some of the best like uh, boxed intros, like editorial style intros of uh, the players in each issue in the game right now. That's fun. A lot of good little jokes here and there. I feel like She-Hulk's world is really well. It feels very different from the uh, rest of the Marvel universe in the same way that when Charles soul was doing She-Hulk, it felt very different. Like I feel, feel like She-Hulk has had a series of great creators and a uh, rainbow Rowell on this is, is continuing that uh, lineage. Brit Moore, number one from IDW written by Steve Niles art by Damian worm. This is basically, if you've seen midnight mass, this is kind of midnight mass a little bit. There's a guy mm. who moves to a small town where nobody likes him. He's trying to rebuild the church. Maybe find something under it. Uh, now, Justin, you attended Bryn Mawr for two years, I believe. Right. So what's your opinion on this? Does this feel true to the campus? Uh, Bryn Mawr, the um, women's school, right? Yes, uh, famously. School. Yeah, I bosom buddies. Yes. I bosom buddies my way into that school. Uh-huh. I did, couldn't get into any of the schools yeah. I liked. So, by the I way, fully... is there a more current reference? Because that's the one that I was going to make as well. And it feels. Like I know you were. Been. I said it before you got yes. to it. Um, no, there isn't because the fact that bosom buddies was a television show is insane. <laughs> uh, and if you haven't ever watched the show, it's a show featuring Tom Hanks, America's mm-hmm. sweetheart, uh, and Peter Scal dress uh they couldn't afford a good apartment in new york city and the only one they could get into was a women's only apartment building so they dressed as women when they would go up and down the elevator to the apartment and then live in the apartment and uh it's a wild and, and i'll also wild. mention this show came out in uh, i assume the early 80s something like that right yes i believe yeah so. this was a real issue in the early 80s is that you can see that through Biz and buddies through tootsie as well it was very hard for men to get roles you had to dress as women yeah. so there were no women there were no women in New York back then. It was all men dressed as women. It's exactly. a crazy time in New York history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and famously, Bosom Buddies had a uh, Billy Joel theme song, which Ooh. is uh, Down Easter Alexa. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, uh, definitely not. You could do the research and find out the song for yourself. Uh, this story is very much like Midnight Mass, the Netflix television show, not the comic book, just to make the comparison clear. Oh, right. Uh, uh, but like. L- this has a great opportunity to be like a, the first real home renovation comic book because there's a big section here where he's buying lumber. He's there. He's tearing out some pews. Like, let's go. Let's flip this church. I love slash hated the non-specificity, specific nature of lumber, too, where he's like, can I get some lumber? And he's like, and, yeah, I'll get you some lumber. And I was like, Jesus yeah. Christ, just research the name of a piece of wood or something like that. Yeah, the name because every piece of wood has a name, and you have to learn Josh, it before give you me, can Give cut me it. some Josh. You got to kiss need it. Seven Joshes. I need seven Joshes. Six I don't know. Days. Ask for some two by fours or something like that. Like, don't be like, give me lumber. Yeah, or have a list because honestly, you need a lot of different uh, sizes and shapes of wood to do anything. Yeah, he does mention um, uh, sheetrock, I believe. So that's mm. really passes the construction test in Great. my. Heavy construction. Anyway, family. this is fine. I would like to read a second issue because they finally get to the concept at the end of the first issue. Uh, and it is Steve Niles revisiting something that he has done very well in the past. So we'll see where we get to. And I will say, slight spoiler, a lot of fucked up stuff in basements in this mm-hmm. stack. You know, basements are day- and from someone who is often in a basement. We're both like, in basements right now. 
Yours is different than mine. I will say that, and <laughs> different so. from the mine's more like the one in this comic. Not to That's say true. I appreciate your beautiful life. Oh, thank you. Blue Book number five from Dark Horse Comics, written by James Town the Fourth and Genevieve Valentine. I'm sorry. Ooh, uh, art by Michael Avon Obig and Big Doyle. This is actually finishing up this story of two alien abductees, where it is uh, tying it into the real story and telling us a little bit more about that. And the backup is again giving us a different true weird story of the world and depicting that what'd you think about this issue uh, i uh like this comic a lot this issue felt almost like an epilogue mm-hmm. uh, so it definitely i thought i expected one more turn or one more event to happen and it almost made me feel like this comic series was a documentary mm-hmm. about this uh situation but i don't think it was yeah i don't think so either but it definitely no. i i agree i mean i think that was the point to be like wait, did this really happen? Did this not really yeah. happen? Yeah. That's the whole point of it. Uh, but very well done. Like we talked about with every other really well written, um, Michael Ivan Oming has top tier art in this book as well. So good read. Definitely go back and pick it all up. Next up, Star Wars, Darth Vader, Black, White, and Red, number three from Marvel, written by Jason Aaron, Daniel Warren Johnson, and Mark Bernardin. Art by Leonard Kirk. Daniel Warren Johnson and Stefano Raphael. This is three story tales of Darth Vader, including uh, one of our faves here, Daniel Warren Johnson. How'd you feel about this issue, Justin? This one, uh, I really like the Daniel Warren Johnson story, but I definitely, over the course of this, was getting sort of the Darth Vader is unstoppable fatigue. Yeah. It was just like Darth Vader wrecking shit in every capacity. And it made me long for like, and I know you can't, his story is a fixed point. So it's hard to tell a story in the middle where bad stuff happens. And I think the the Jason Aaron story actually started there in the first issue and has progressed a bit. So um, I think that's just part of the character. But you know what it made me long for is some Darth Vader stories set where after uh, the uh, episode three, when he wakes up and is like, I'm in this armor that doesn't quite fit me, mm-hmm. which is the most frustrating part that it doesn't quite fit him. And then when he became the absolute king of the empire, surely there's some time there where he was getting adjusted to his new, mostly robotic body, uh, figuring out how the empire works, where that we could insert some vulnerability or a little bit of uh, a little bit of like being a fish out of water or something that I think would be in- an interesting area. Cause in these stories, again, beautifully drawn, interesting. It's just Darth Vader being like, I'm literally unstoppable. Mm-hmm. I did, to contradict you a little bit, I did really like the Mark Bernardin story, which is about him. I, I mean, I don't want to ruin like the twist here, even though you can kind of see it coming a mile away, and I think purposefully so. But he recruits somebody from the Empire to help him out with a mission. It does not quite go the way she planned. Mm-hmm. I I liked it. I liked the art of it, yeah. arc of it. And again, I, I also I thought I liked all of these stories. It just there was freeing three of them sure. back to back. It was fatigued there. Action Comics 1056 from DC Comics, written by Philip Kenny Johnson, Dan Jurgens, and Dorado Quick. Art by Rafa Sandiel and Sandoval, excuse me, and Max Rayner, Lee Weeks, and Yasmin Flores Montanez. In the front story, we're wrapping up the Metallo arc that has been going on that actually turned out to be a cyborg Superman arc. And then mm. we get our two backup stories following 
a sort of more Smallville era kind of Superman, and Ooh. then one about Steel that actually leads into the Steelworks series that is ongoing. I like this book. I still like this book. Agree. Uh, I think the um, the main story um, I've been really enjoying a uh, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson, different than Daniel Warren Johnson, different people, but similarly named. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been just the expansion of the uh, super family while also bringing all these villains while bringing uh, Lex Luthor and an overarching story and all that has been excellent. Really enjoying that across the board. But the second story, the uh, Dan Jurgens Lee Week story, I think is such a standout. It's so cool uh, following it's uh, young, young John Kent. Um, who is before he's aged up, he is uh, sort of drawn away and it's uh, Superman and uh, Lois are trying to get him back. And he's in this whole other adventure. I don't want to spoil it, but like Lee Week's art is awesome. The story is really interesting. I love it's such a swing to set a story in this period that you sort of have to have a hard time explaining <laughs> what's <laughs> happening. Uh, but it's just really good. I really like this issue's part of that story in particular. I've been okay with it in general, but there was something about John being trapped in an airtight container and trying to get his father's attention while his father is fighting his way to him. There was a great amount of tension there and it builds really nicely. Sexual tension? No, no, no. No, again, no, no. The way that Lee Weeks draws Superman as well, it's, it's a very different profile because he's wearing this black costume. He has a little bit of stubble and everything like that, but I really like that as well. So agreed. Yeah. Power Rangers Unlimited, the coin list, number one for Boob Studios, written by Adam Cesare, art by Moshe Sadaldo. This takes place in a universe where I think the bad guys have won and the Power Rangers don't have their power coins and stuff. There's no coins. Oh, it's boy. a coinless. The first lines of this comic are the coinless universe. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I'm not the biggest Power Rangers aficionado. So when I read this, I was like, um, coinless universe. That would be fun. But only paper money. You don't have to worry about <laughs> Yeah, about do they need pennies. power coins? Is that the deal? Uh, yes. they. It's. I think that's what's in the, when they sort of thrust their hands forward. It's a coin oh, in it's there. It's a coin. Okay. Yeah. It's a right. coin in like a special coin holder. I will but, say um, this comic okay. book was not made for me. Go ahead, Justin. <laughs> oh, you don't? Because I will say like it is also not made for me. But I think this comic, and we said this about the other ones, does a good job of really building out the universe in a not – doesn't feel especially forced. feels rooted in character. And I don't know if um, there's sort of these uh, shadow monsters and they remind me of the putties from the mm-hmm. original Power Rangers series. And see, good if that's where where the idea came from, it's a good use of like the dumb cannon fodder in the TV show to make them these like sort of darker expressions. Um, and there's some fun twists and turns in here. Indigo Children number four. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you have to say. Uh, this was, you know, so, I, for those of you listening, just a slight nod of the little tip of the hat and out of the head from Alex when he's like, good day, comic. I bid you good night, I, I Power like Rangers. This is really slamming something because this is definitely like uh, – I've talked about being pleasantly surprised by some of the other Power Rangers comics because this is they're not my thing. This is one that I read and I was like, well, this is this is for the hardcore Power Rangers fans. Enjoy. 
Because you like a more time. coined universe. Mm-hmm. That's you the like thing. A, I can't understand that. Like, yeah. there's no dimes here? No dimes? Yeah. No. For those of you listening, Alex loves dimes. I he did. loves it. They're so tiny. I'll tell you what. The other day, and this is a true story, I was walking down the street, and I saw something shiny on the street, and it was a dime, and I literally skidded to a stop to get it. And I was like, wow. Sk- stop. Skidded? I did. Yeah, how many? I, what rollerblades were you on? No, it was regular shoes, but I was like, uh, probably like a couple of inches. So I was like, ee! and then I stopped right there, and I was like, I literally stopped on a dime. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I love the idea that you stopped like um, a, a skateboarder <laughs> or car burning rubber as it before I felt it hits a little a tri- bit like a cartoon character that moment. I don't usually do that. Ooh, <laughs> dime baby. <laughs> Uh, Indigo Children, number four from Image Comics, written by Kurt Pyers and Rockwell Wright, art by Alex Diodo. This book becomes, and I say this complimentarily, more and more X-Men with every issue as we Mm. build this team of outsiders, all with different powers who are being chased by shadowy government entities. It's great. Uh, I'm loving it, and I'm loving the art in particular. The way that the Indigo children use their different powers is so different than anything we've ever seen before. This is a really good superhero book for people who have been put off a little bit by superhero books. Nice. I think that's a good way of saying it, Um, especially like we were talking about how the um, X universe is a little bit – uh, you have to be really in it to sort of enjoy it, maybe. And if you're looking for that sort of flavor, I will also say this doesn't feel like classic X-Men comics. It feels like maybe a good adaptation, uh, a feature film adaptation of the X-Men comics. Mm. Uh, because it feels like sort of modern and very like broad, uh, broad scale storytelling. So, yeah, I, I like it a lot. It r- reminds me a lot also of the Arbinger series from Valiant Comics. That was, oh, uh, that's a good a call as ago. well. Um, and I'd also throw out there, this really aims for the issue. Like, each issue feels like its yeah. own unit while it's telling the ongoing story. Anyway, very impressed by this. Definitely check it out. Daredevil and Echo, number two from Marvel, written by Taboo and B. Earl, art by Phil Noto. This team got the two characters of the title, and they are dealing with a lot of very weird things going on in the Marvel Universe. I know I, this is the one that I was slagging off a little bit earlier. It is nothing against it other than, uh, yeah, I read this second after I read Creed, and I was like, oh, you have Daredevil and Echo. There's an opportunity there for them to be using ASL where they're talking to each other that just feels missed that I 100% would not have noticed if I hadn't read Creed first, but... It was a bummer in retrospect. That's funny. I read them in the opposite order and didn't notice it as much. But I will say there was a moment. There's a moment in this comic where Daredevil was like, she'll never read my lips from here. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Have a sign or something. You guys dated. (laughs) Surely you know how to talk to each other. Especially when you're fighting all these like weird uh, demon guys. I I will say like, I I love these characters. I like Mm -hmm. the uh, surprise guest we get at the end of this issue. I'm curious what we're going. I don't – the two timelines, I don't know how they're going to reference each other. Like I want a little bit more connective tissue between them, I think. It feels very coincidental so far as opposed to thematically tied together. I don't need as much coincidence. I need like it to feel like it's germane to both sides of it. And also the sort of hobgoblin demon seems strange. Yeah, what's going on there? It's like, and the name is, I think, 
demon goblin. <coughs> but I guess that I would rather it be just a regular demon than a a demon goblin that rides a hobgoblin style like sled. Well, do, it's a it's demon. Demo, demo goblin, I think. Yeah. Who? Uh, De- Demo. Yeah. Demo goblin. Uh, I think that's a character for one of the Spider-Man comic books. Regardless, I agree with you. There's a lot going on in this book right now. When you already have two title characters, I will say Phil Noto always impeccable on the art. So. Yeah. And like in general, I like the book. It just feels like there's a couple things where I'm like, I don't quite know why this is happening. Right. And, uh, and so like, maybe we'll find out that it was all intended. There you go. Fables 159 from DC Comics, written by Bill Willingham, art by Mark Buckingham. As usual with Fables, there is a bunch of stuff going on in this book, but specifically, Bigby Wolf has encountered a bunch of slaughtered animal in the woods and is making a bet with some other folks that he will become the warden of the woods. Meanwhile, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell are on the warpath against Fuck Bigby. that, Peter Pan. Uh, that guy's, uh, get out of here. Bad yeah. dude. Uh, this is definitely an issue where things ramp up significantly in terms of yeah. the danger and the heartbreak. Uh, this book, since it's returned, I felt like has been sort of affable. You know, you read it, you're like, oh, that's nice. Like medium? Mid? Uh, yeah, mid. Uh, I always enjoy it. Like, it's just like, yeah, this is a quality book with some gorgeous Mark Buckingham art. I get what's going on here. Uh, but this is where things ramp up a lot. Yeah. First off, Peter Pan, grow up. Yeah, uh, but second, I will say that always fables, the villains are amazing, and this book is a testament. It just keeps that going, like the villains and the intricately designed uh, sort of plot that weaves everyone together like a great fairy tale. And we get that. I just don't know how they keep continuing to do it with each new iteration of the series. And uh, to me, it's it's working. It's beyond mid. <laughs> The Neighbors, number four from Boob is written by Jude Ellison S. Doyle and art by Letizia Kananishi. This is about a family that moves to a small town and some horrible things are going on there. We have already lost the older daughter and potentially the mother of the family in the last issue, though we deal with that in a big way in this issue, as well as finding out about a lot of the mythology of the town. On top of all that, this is dealing with trans issues, agoraphobia, other things like that. But like you said on the live show, Justin, one of the scariest books on the stand right now. Yeah, it's it's scary, but it's a great story. You don't even I don't know who to trust here because we have like uh, sort of a witch character. We have the neighbors that are there's there's just a lot of elements here where I'm like me. I don't know who, what's good, what's bad. We get into some like uh, sort of beyond reality visions that happen mm-hmm. in here that are terrifying. And still we don't know and rules that are not explained, but are like super engaging. Just a fantastic book. Local Man, number five, from Image Comics, written by Tony Fleeks and Tim Seeley, art by Tony Fleeks and Tim Seeley. We have been following a uh, 90s image-style character who has gone back to live in his hometown. He's been uncovering a conspiracy involving his own teammates. Things went sort of apocalyptic in the last issue, and now we're dealing with that fallout here. This series continues to be great, and in particular, the backup stories are so good and so funny channeling these 90s image comic books. This one in particular is packed with a ludicrous amount of puns 
for all your favorite image comic books from back in the day. Great stuff. I didn't shout this out on the live show, but this is another one of my favorite reads of the week. This this book has been absolutely fantastic. Like, just great storytelling. I, I've mentioned this before, but it's like if you love the Matt Fraction Hawkeye, this feels like that for uh, for just the, the sort of image character, 90s image character. Like, it's great. I like the the surprises we get at the end of this issue. This, issue. this feels like it wraps up the the first real story arc and it pivots to the next one in a good way. And yeah, the backups are super fun in every issue. Just a great, I hope these first five issues are collected in a trade because it'll be an excellent trade. Silk number two from Marvel written by Emily Kim art by Ig Guara. Silk has been kind of captured mostly just in her sleep by an old enemy who is sending uh-huh. her through a bunch of scenarios in this issue. Silk's brother, I believe comes to try to rescue her. Um, I think we were mixed on the first issue. Do you feel like things picked up in the second? Still feel a little mixed. I don't quite understand the, and I guess it hasn't really been said. We just know that the villains have to keep Silk sleeping and like in these, and she's almost breaking through the fantasy worlds that she keeps sliding through. If if from a uh, cowboy situation into a pirate situation here. Um, And like, it just, it, I, I don't silk is an absent from the book because she's caught up in this mostly. So she is definitely someone who we, you know, she doesn't know what's happening. So it's hard to really ride with her from a storytelling perspective. The brother takes the place and it, it he's sort of an interesting character has some good moves here, but I, I guess I just want a little bit more structure or like premise to it. You know? Yeah. I think, this is not the fault of the book necessarily, but it suffers in comparison to, I'm forgetting the exact title of the book, but there was a Wonder Woman miniseries recently that ran that had a similar premise with Wonder Woman yeah. asleep and being controlled by a villain for nefarious means. Also, Love Everlasting from Tom King and Elsa Charitier. This is, comes mm. in a very different way, but I get shades of that as well in this. So I want to like this book, but I'm not quite there yet is the problem. Yeah. Unstoppable Doom Patrol, number four from DC Comics, written by Dennis Culliver, art by David LaFuente. This issue, we're getting a classic. The team therapist talks to everybody. And finally, after four issues, we're catching up with the main members of the Doom Patrol, who I think purposefully so have been sort of lost in the mix of this run. But we're catching up with their continuities and what's going on with them, as well as some other characters. I love the series. Uh, From the art to the writing, everything's great. Great David LaFuente art. The only thing I would say, because it is fun. I like these characters. Um, we watched and talked a lot about the Doom Patrol in our uh, Doom Patrol podcast, the Doom Room. So I feel very close to them. I, this, the, the thing with this book that bothers me a bit is to put them so hard in the DC universe, I think robs them of their weirdness in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, I want them to be separate, engaged in their own weirdness, because this book over the course of it references a lot of the other continuity, and it just makes them seem less weird, because the DC continuity is also insane, so they just feel like a more, excuse me, boilerplate superhero team, when I think their their specialness, their their uniqueness is that they are off to this corner and very different. 
Yeah. Vanish number eight from Image Comics, written by Donny Cates, art by Ryan Stegman. This is the end of the first massive story arc of this book. Uh, We found out that the main character was putting together his old enemy, Vanish. Imagine if Harry Potter was putting together the Horcruxes to recreate Voldemort. Not to use a Harry Potter metaphor, we don't talk about that book anymore. But imagine, if you will, something very similar to that. It is the second time we've talked about it in this podcast. But yes, yes. we don't talk about that book. Yeah, but in general. Uh, But uh, it all comes down to this as he tries to fight back against it. I'll tell you what, and this is 100% on me, because maybe it was readily apparent in the first couple of issues, but last issue, when I finally realized this was an alcoholism metaphor, I love it so much more, and it's working so much better for me, and it worked really well on this issue, in terms of, like, just just put down the alcohol or put down the drugs. You don't have to use it anymore. And our main character wanting to do that, wanting to do that so badly, but not being able to, getting to see how that affects the woman that he's married to. Very, very great levels of metaphor through action going on here. Yeah, it's a dark story. And it's packaged like a Top Cow, uh, Harry Potter-esque comic. Mm-hmm. So like it's a tough like I, I I understand why we haven't talked about that inherent metaphor here because like it's not right there. It, mm-hmm. Like it's it's hard to sort of see through that. So I think making that a little bit more apparent earlier on, I think would have been enjoy made this series in, in general a little more enjoyable across the board. Uh regardless, I'm glad I checked out the first arc of this. Certainly uh, one you might want to Check out, at the very least, for the Ryan Stegman art, because he's drawing the crap out of these characters. And if you are looking for a Top Cow, Harry Potter-style book, this is the one to check out. City Boy, number two, from DC Comics, written by Greg Pak, art by Minkyu Young. This is following a kid who can feel, I incorrectly said the last time we talked about this, the city of Gotham. He can actually feel the city of Metropolis and things that are lost in there in particular. There's some nefarious forces we're working for none other than Dark Side, who are trying to track him down. Um, so there are already two issues in both huge stakes and personal stakes going on in this book. Like I said, for the first issue, Greg Pack is doing a kick-ass job of setting up a new character and making him an intrinsic part of the DC universe. Guy knows how to write comics, Greg Pak. Uh, and I, this book always, or this character, City Boy, who we saw in some of the Lazarus, uh, the ongoing Lazarus um, crossover Planet. issues. Lazarus Planet, yeah. Lazarus Universe. Lazarus Life, as I always say, because yeah. we live that life. The uh, This reminds me of the uh, Sandman st- World's End story, where the guy gets lost inside the dream of the city. Mm-hmm. Feels right, right there in a good way. And uh, I like the larger stakes that are being uh, established here, especially the reveal at, on the last page. Avengers Beyond, number four from Marvel, written by Derek Landy, art by Greg Land. The Beyonder has been manipulating the Avengers to keep away an ancient enemy who wants to kill him. In this issue, we meet a bunch of bootleg Avengers who are fighting against the Avengers with this new villain waiting in the wings. It actually, in a surprising way, ties back to Jonathan Hickman's take on the Beyonders. Not just Mm. the Beyonder, but the Beyonders, which is very surprised to see, but it makes sense here. 
I also continue to love this book. This is just very fun, one-shotty stories with a overarching plot going on at the same time. Yeah. Take me to Landyland because this is a fun uh, book. I don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. Each issue ends and I'm like, ah, okay. I don't know what's <laughs> next. Like the end of the last issue where they were like, look at these Avengers. They're not they're bad Avengers. They're bad versions of your Avengers. I was like, who are these people? Can't wait to find out. Yep. And the same this issue, I'm like, I don't know what's happening next, but I'm ready to find out. Yeah, it's a roller coaster ride of a book. The Seasons Have Teeth, number three from Boom Studios, written by Dan Waters, art by Sebastian Cabral. This is about a photographer who is trying to capture pictures of the seasons who are enormous monsters that live throughout the United Kingdom and beyond. He has taken pictures at this point of two of them, I believe. And um, this issue is on the path of fall. Uh, This is the most emotional issue of this book yet, I think. Def. And it's been building up to this. We get a big exploration of um, our main character, uh, the photographer whose wife was dying and some of the things, the choices he made over the course of that, uh, that he's thinking about that as he's chasing down this monster of, of autumn. I, this book is so strange. The idea that seasons become monsters is strange. This photographer who is willing to risk his life to go, uh, take pictures of them. It almost reminds me and it's on my brain because I've just finished watching it, but it reminds me a little bit of black mirror, mm-hmm. almost like a black mirror episode in comic form. And that's a fantastic idea. So I, one of my favorites of the week really enjoy this world tree. Number three from image comics written by James Tyne, the fourth art by Fernando Blanco. This is about a, Evil internet virus that infects people and drives them insane. That's the short version of it. We get a longer explanation of it in this issue. The undernet. We got to get the podcast on the undernet, dude. Oh, we totally do. There is, I'll tell you what. There is a link in the back of the book, and at least when I checked, the password didn't work on the link. I think it's like worldtree.net or something like that. Mm. Um, Very disappointing. But maybe it works now. Maybe if you check it now, now that the issue is live, uh, you know. It'll work. But regardless, this book... Alex, don't check it. I got to go check it. I got to go check it. And I was actually scared when I was typing it in. I was like, what if it works? What if I get it? The password is Mr. Winter. With with numbers. With ones and threes instead of I's and E's. Yeah. Anyway, go check that out and die, I guess. This book is really good. There's an enormous amount of tension in it. The mythology is interesting. Sexual tension? Uh, sexual. T- well, there's a nude lady who's covered in blood. So if you like that. I would argue there's not a lot of sexual tension associated <laughs> with her because she's scary. She's yeah, she's scary. terrifying. She kills well, and- a guy in a car window. Yeah, and she's sort of looming. It reminds me a little bit of It Follows, the mm-hmm. horror movie, great horror movie, uh, in the way that it's like this n- naked lady threat that is constantly – and like sort of the a personification of the internet I think is what is at play here. I like that it is also a something that infects different characters. It's just um, a very dark book that I've been enjoying. And real quick, what is a time that you felt threatened by a naked lady? Go ahead, Justin. I guess always. I guess just every moment. Yeah. I'm like, yikes. Uh, 
looks. You're like, oh boy. Okay. <laughs> Do I take my clothes off or put more on? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how this works. The, get the snow pants on. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> the Amazing Spider-Man number 28 for Marvel, written by Zeb Wells, art by Ed McGinnis. In this issue, we're picking up with the cliffhanger of the last issue, where Doc Ock's tentacles have come to visit J. Jonah Jameson. This issue, he takes them over to Norman Osborn to help heal them. Uh, it's all part of a plan by Dr. Octopus to take down all of his enemies, including Spider-Man, at the same time. I appreciated the fact that we didn't have one billion things going on like the last issue, but the fact that Doc Ock is like, "I'm my, my uh, plan this time is to kill you, I think, is a little simple. It's well, a little me- simple. Let me throw this out, like, because I know I've been sort of a lot of people are hating on this book. Um, I've been going to bat for at least the Mary Jane Peter Parker stuff, which I've been interested in. But I also think this book is insane. Like the mm-hmm. idea that Doc Ock, first off, that Doc Ock's tentacles are a character, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that J. Jonah Jameson weirdly loves and that maybe betray everyone, like is like a character that is offering drama into this story. I'm like, what? The fact that the Golden Goblin is almost more featured than Mm Spider-Man as a hero is strange to me. And then that they've changed Doc Ox from having just like straight up tentacles that are bonded to him that he can't get off. So he's been driven insane to like goopy dudes that he like hangs out with. (laughs) It's like, uh, what? It feels very much like uh, sort of acid and acid trip version of Spider-Man. The not to Pete out too much because I am all for comics growing and changing and finding new modes of stuff. But there's a scene where J. Jonah Jameson is waiting outside the operating room where Peter Parker and Norman Osborn are in there working on Doc Ock's tentacles and trying to heal it. And I was like, what? what is going on here yeah. with Peter Parker that he's hanging out with his good friend J. Jonah Jameson, who loves him, Norman Osborn, who will help no matter what, and they're trying to heal Doc Ock's tentacles? Like, with no re- like the only reaction for Peter Parker is like, Hey, hey, Jane, J- Jonah Jameson, I just wanted to let you know what's going on with the tentacles. And he has this smile on his face the other entire time, which, granted, all these relationships have been established over a long time. So I get it. Yes. So I don't want to be a stick in the mud. But at the same time, it is weird. Well, let me just throw this out. What if I showed up? We were hanging out. And like, oh, I'll meet up with you. I'm going to bring two friends. I was like, here are my two friends. They're 70 and 70. <laughs> <laughs> And here's a bunch of metal stuff that we also brought with us. Look how much fun we're having. Like that well, to and, me. And also, all of those three things that you just mentioned, the two 70-year-olds and the hunk of metal, have tried to kill you a lot. <laughs> say, oh, yeah, these guys, I know these guys used to hate me, both publicly and privately, but they're chill now. Let's grab a couple beers. <laughs> yeah. This guy over here, funny story, you got to hear him tell this story. One time he threw my girlfriend off the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. Funniest, funniest story. Oh, my God. And I know you're thinking like, yeah, it's crazy. And I rescued her. But nope, she died. <laughs> yeah, I stabbed her neck. It was kind of my fault. I blamed myself for it forever. Anyway, Green Arrow number three from DC Comics, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Sean Isaacs. Green Arrow is trapped somewhere in space and time, but he's slowly gathering together. His family, we find out why he has been on the run and why he won't return home in this issue. Uh, what do you think about this? 
Really going a long way to Bat Family, the Green Arrow verse here, really trying to put that all together, which does seem fun. It feels like it's happening in a so fast that it feels a little bit forced in a way. But mm. I like I like these characters. I like sort of where the story ends up. We get a big premise laid on here that the Green Arrow family can't ever come together or there will be universe-shattering consequences. So um, I guess we'll see how that is most definitely overcome. Yeah. Uh, But uh, I will say I do like – I think the art is good, and I like where we land from a character point of view. Alien number three from Marvel, written by Declan Shalvey, art by Andrea Brocardio. Uh, This is following a family that is trapped on an ice planet with a bunch of colonial marines. Is that what they're called? Uh, And Uh, whatever uh, it is, Weyland-Yutani people and soldiers and also a bunch of xenomorphs. Space marines? Space marines, sure. Uh, And the xenomorphs have come out of the ice and are attacking. Um, Yeah, really bonkers, amped up very quickly, intense, insane alien action happening in this issue. Yeah, I like this issue a lot. This the previous issue at number two, uh, we talked about like this went from like finding one xenomorph in the ice to there's like seventy of them suddenly yep. attacking them, which felt like really fast and like you know injecting adrenaline into the story. I actually think this issue really did a great job of settling it down while keeping the sort of uh, buffalo run of xenomorphs from under the sea. Uh, it kept it in a nice perspective and brought it out. I like though this family. I don't this stressful what's happening to them, especially one particular move in the comic. Uh, so I hope everything ends up going well for them, just like every alien story. Exactly. Uh, Hell to Pay, number six from Image Comics, written by Charles Soule, art by Will Sliney. This is the end of this series, but the kickoff of the Shrouded College, a big seven-book series that this team is working on that has already been optioned for TV. Here we're getting a showdown between our main heroes and the guy who has collected a ludicrous amount of souls in order to talk to the devil. Um, I feel like we've been a little mixed on this series, but how do you feel it wrapped up here? Just this, uh, while the Power Rangers was set in the coinless universe, this is set in the very coined universe. Mm, There's like coins. Extreme coin. If you're a coin head, you're going to love this comic. The, um, I I mean, I like this uh, world. I like these main characters. Uh, This this resolves nicely. I feel like there's a a lot happening in each issue. It it feels just a little overstuffed, but I, and the fact that it's such a long, story that we're going to get a lot more of, I feel like um, is nice. And I wish there was just a little more space for the story to move uh, in in this issue. Yeah, I don't really, I'm very happy for them. They're both good guys, but I don't quite get a sense of what the Shrouded College is or why we need to follow this for seven months. It's very Shrouded. Yes, that is true. And I will say the tease of the next miniseries, which is Vampires in Space, Sounds very fun, very there for see? there for it. But I, I'm curious to see how this all fleshes out, what the big overarching story is, because I'm not 100% clear on that at the moment. Well, and I like the the reveal that like, oh, this shrouded college is actually the least shrouded college and the smallest college. It's almost like a shrouded community college. I was like, mm-hmm. there are more <laughs> densely shrouded, bigger colleges out there? Okay, I'll believe it when I see it. 
Captain America, Symbol of Truth, number 14 from Marvel, written by Taki Anibuchi, art by Zay Carlos. This is picking up off the end of the Cold War storyline as Sam Wilson picks back up his life and checks in with folks, particularly Joaquin, who has been turned into a bird man, a falcon man, falcon. if you will. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about this? I we talked. I talked a little bit about how I think uh, this crossover was was interesting, though got a little wobbly, maybe as it as it ended. And I like this as a, a recentering. And this, I believe, is the last issue of this yes. series, uh, which it feels like there was more story to tell here. Mm-hmm. And I like the Sam Joaquin relationship. I hope we get a little bit more of that uh, because that feels like where the power is. There's a lot in sort of the front half of Sam being not happy to be at his birthday party and sort of going to see a comedy show, which I thought was sort of a funny uh, place for him to be where he gets legit. All of his friends are like, ah, come, this guy's been roasting you. You're going to love it. I was like, he will not. He will not love it. (laughs) Going to a place where you're being roasted, been there. Not the best. Not fun. Good Deeds, number two from IDW, written by Che Grayson, art by Kelsey Ramsey. This is basically a Florida noir, at least uh, that's what it seems, in the first two issues. I like the sweaty tension inherent here in terms of the setting and everything. Uh, This is working for me as an overall mystery. I'm curious to see where it goes, particularly after that last page, which is creepy and upsetting. Yeah, I really like the the setting. I feel like the Mm -hmm. setting is almost like the biggest character in the book. And then Mm -hmm. all of the other characters are in service of that. And the characters are slowly coming together a little bit more. Um, I feel like it's about time for a threat to come from them, which I think will be the next issue. Yeah. Last but not least, Predator number four from Marvel, written by Ed Bryson, art by Deatho Diaz. We have a bunch of stuff, a bunch of stuff, a bunch of people who have been taken from different places in time, put in cryostasis, we assume, and are all being hunted by predators. In this issue, they're all trapped on a ship with a predator and are breaking into factions. Some of them are like, well, just give the, the other people to the predators and the predators will leave us alone. And the other people are like, what are you doing? Um, so continues to be a good series. Uh, yeah. You know, the predators are predators, but also the people are predators. Have you ever thought about that? I haven't really. Maybe the, the people are like, you know, the walking dead or like the people are, right. uh, maybe the, you know the, the I mean? people are the aliens. Oh, the people. Yeah, the um, the people are the uh, – what's the HBO show? <laughs> <laughs> last of Us? The Last of Us. The people yeah. are the last The people of us. are the green arrow. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. If you'd like to support the show and all the shows we do, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube. Come hang out. We'd love to chat with you about comic books, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice. Subscribe, listen, and follow the show at Comic Book Live on Twitter, Comic Book Club Live on TikTok and Instagram, comicbookclublive.com. For this podcast and many more, until next time, we'll see you at the comic book shop. We love you, Apocalypse. Sorry to talk shit. It's okay. <laughs>